Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. World Password Day is on May 5th. So on this week's segment of Women Who Code Talks Tech, we're featuring a talk by Ashwini Basanath, builder at DevRev. She'll be discussing why security architecture is important and how to implement it. This talk does refer to some visual aids throughout it. So visit womenwhocode.com forward slash blog to see those slides and the full transcript. Enjoy. So we'll talk about what do we want to secure. Now, I've kind of taken a a particular architecture. Of course, there are various different ways in which you can architect your product. Um, But in this particular example, I've kind of assumed that you have an entry point into your um, system, and that entry point is the API gateway. So it's a load balancer come API gateway, let's say, which is the entry point into your system. And that's the only piece that is public facing. So that faces the internet or anything external from your cloud. And then you have a bunch of these services, which so everything in blue is inside your cloud, inside your system. And each of these services could possibly be a microservice, which is um, building out a certain part of your application. And it sits behind the gateway. And then, of course, we would have a database um, in our as part of our product or solutions. So the database as well is within your cloud. Of course, you could be using an externally hosted database for certain use cases. So um, that's a possibility as well. And as we can see, there are interactions all around over here, right? So there's this one part of the interaction that you see where an API request or any kind of external interaction that's coming into your product from outside. And then there are various interactions which happen within your uh, within the cloud or within the perimeter of your product. Now, um, the philosophy of zero trust is that we treat everything the same. So just like you would treat an attacker who's external as a huge threat and try to secure the boundary. And I often take this example where I say, this is kind of like building a fence around your house and saying, okay, so I'm protected because I have this fence around the house. And so the boundary is safe. Um, However, we know that there are various attacks that could actually be internal to your system. What I mean by that is maybe somebody accidentally downloaded um, you know, some, some kind of a, um, a virus and that kind of penetrates your entire system and compromises the entire product. Or it could be uh, you know, someone who inadvertently does something which ends up turning into an attack vector. So essentially by applying the security policies and also you know, the security protocols both within and outside the same way, you would be guarding yourself against both of these kind of attackers. 
So let me start with talking about the periphery or the gateway. So this is the fence equivalent, right? So of course there are various levels of protection. I'm starting with the network access control uh, list and the firewall, this is usually the, the first level of defense in some sense. It's the, um, the, the periphery, like it's, it's typically kind of just the entry point into your uh, product and possibly even outside of your product. And this involves a few things. And I, I don't know how many of you over here have a networking background, uh, but essentially this involves a few very, very um, specialized um, rules to be written, which are called access control lists. And it also defines a boundary within which you operate, a network boundary, which is called uh, VPC in Amazon. It's the virtual private uh, cloud. And then you start writing rules about what do you want to allow access to from within this particular network boundary that you've defined. And so it, as you can see, it becomes fairly complex because then you have to deal with IP addresses and subnets and then talking, you know, trying to figure out exactly how do you write these rules. And uh, this could be a non-trivial exercise, but this is usually the first level of defense. It's by no means you know, foolproof. It's not like we have this in place, we're done, right? So going to the next level, um, we spoke briefly about denial of service. So essentially what denial of service means is that somebody starts bombarding you with a huge amount of requests. Now, as we're gonna see later in the talk, there are mechanisms you can put in place to figure out, <coughs> excuse me, how to authenticate the user, how to figure out if it's a, you know, a valid user trying to do a valid operation, et cetera. But all of that is gonna take some amount of processing. So if you're gonna be bombarded with a bunch of requests, you could just be you know, out of resources trying to handle those requests and then do this authentication or uh, you know, the security protocol procedures. And so that's where the concept of a web application firewall comes in where they're able to actually identify such uh, malicious activity based on some uh, predefined signatures, which keep evolving based on the threats and how they uh, surface up. And they're able to block that traffic. So it doesn't even hit your product um, entry point in some sense, right? So it doesn't hit the API gateway that we spoke about. It's thwarted at a layer before that. And um, th that's how, for example, you could do something called rate limiting and also avoid these kind of um, malicious attacks. Again, just another layer and we'll continue to peel the, peel the onion. So now I'm talking about authentication. So this is a piece which is gonna define who you are, right? Who is the person who is trying to access your, um, you know, access anything. So they're making, let's say an API request. Maybe they're trying to get data about some person's profile. And so you wanna know who is this who's trying to get data and should I allow them to get it, right? Um, so these are two qu different questions, but we'll start with who you are and that's the authentication piece. Now there are various different uh, ways of doing authentication. Um, some of them have kind of been an evolution. And um, 
the reason all of these exist in kind of parallel in some sense is that uh, one, I guess products are in different stages of evolution, depending on when you actually built your product, you probably used a mechanism which was, uh, you know, current at that point of time. But also in terms of simplicity of how you could implement it, these things really vary a lot. So we're going to look at these in a little bit of detail. Um, again, please let me know if this is too much of detail or too less. Um, so talking about basic auth, right? So uh, basic authentication is, I think, what most people are just familiar with in terms of interacting with a product as a user. So this is where you give your username and your password, right? Uh, but the way the protocol works between a client and a server trying to kind of basically auth use basic auth is that they send this username and password in a base64 encoded um, fashion, which basically means that it's fairly easy for you to crack it or to kind of decrypt it. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not even encrypted, it's just encoded, so decode it, right? So you can decode it and then fairly figure, fairly easily figure out how to enter or breach another system. Uh, of course, if you use SSL, which we'll discuss in terms of certificate, based authentication as well, um, then your transmission or your medium is actually encrypted and then that gives you a level of security. The next mechanism is something called a bearer token. So this is kind of a, a step up from the, uh, the username and the password, right? So what happens in this case is the user signs in and there is a, a concept of something called an identity provider or an auth server, which generates this token, which we call a bearer token basically because the bearer of the token is allowed to access uh, the system, right? Uh, and so this ID, um, the identity provider would basically generate this token. We'll look at the token in a bit, uh, but generate it for, uniquely for each user who's signing in. And then the user takes that token and tries to access your system. Now, one thing to note over here is that the generator will basically use a key, a private key to be able to sign the token and make it secure. And the way that the server or basically your server in the product would actually go ahead and um, figure out whether it's a valid token is by using the public key corresponding to that key which was used for generation to verify that the token is valid. So this is a bit about how the token itself looks, right? Like what does this token actually have? So it has a header, it has a payload, and then it has a signature, which is basically um, gonna run an algorithm on the header and payload to make sure that it is secure, right? And it can be validated. Now the, um, the header will tell you the algorithm, it'll tell you the type of token it is, the payload can actually have, it can have custom fields, but it usually has some set fields like who issued this token, right? Like who is it issued for? And who's the audience? Like who are the people who are allowed to access resources based on this particular token? And this is another interesting one where it says expiration time, right? So you're not gonna hand out this token and be and just say, that's it. I mean, you can access my system forever. Instead, 
you're going to say you can use my token for let's say an hour and then you'll have to come back and ask me for another token to get it refreshed because i'm not going to give you access for a long you know there, there are kind of downsides of giving access for a long period of time because revoking it then becomes really hard and also if your token gets compromised for some reason then you 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 have no way to um, you know recover from it so some things to keep in mind if we go with the better token approach is that like i mentioned you could have custom claims but we want to make sure that you don't have like a huge amount of data that you put over there and also you don't want to put sensitive information over there within the token that can be easily decoded um and we should use https like secure communication for the headers and um we you would have seen that there is an algorithm mentioned over here but um the advice is basically not to just go by what's mentioned by but actually verify that that's the algorithm that was used because somebody might have spoofed it or you know done an attack to kind of change it and if it's persisted in cookies the um the advice is to mark it as http only basically because you don't want your browser javascript kind of reading this token and then misusing it uh, for something from the cookie now coming to certificate based authentication um the way certificate based authentication works is that your so your browser and your so essentially your browser is the client right and the web server basically trust something called a certificate authority um so a good example or a parallel over here is we all trust the dmv so when the dmv issues us a driver's license then everybody accepts that that's a valid identity proof right so similarly the web server is basically going to get a certificate which is signed by the certificate authority and the client when it talks to the server and receives this certificate is going to trust that certificate basically because the client trusts the certificate authority as well and so um the certificate is used as a proxy for the server to prove its identity to the client that it is a valid um, server that's actually um, that the client can connect to now um the open id connect one is probably uh, i would say in the stages of evolution this is probably you know more current than all of the rest and um the way this operates is if you have a web application you get your request to the web application actually gets redirected and it goes through maybe you could go through a uh, uh you know one of these providers they called single sign on providers so i i'm sure all of you uh, many of you have actually encountered this where you you'll see this uh login screen where they say hey you can log in using your google or using your facebook or you know using github um and so that is a single sign on which essentially means you don't need to again create a login username and password they will use your identity which is provided by google or facebook to authenticate you right and so um given you let's say for the simplest case let's say you provided some kind of a password and then you got directed and what happens behind the scenes is that they reach out to something called an open id connect provider 
which in turn reaches out to the identity provider that we spoke about before to be able to get a token. And here, this protocol basically beefs it up and says, um, it's not just a token, right? I will first give you an authorization code. And then based on that code, if you send that back to me and I'm, um, there's a way to kind of send it back in a secure way, and then I am convinced that it's you, then I'll send you a token, right? And then I will send you two kinds of tokens, one which is called the identity token, and then another one which is called an access token with different um, uh, you know, expiry times potentially, and then uh, you could use those, right? So a little more uh, complicated and uh, probably hidden uh, from the customer if they are using something called a single, uh, some, something similar to a single sign-on provider. Now that was authentication, right? So we spoke about three or four different mechanisms that you can use to do authentication. Uh, one thing I'd like to note over here is, I think um, there are always, you could implement these protocols for sure. There are RFC standards available and you can actually build these out. And um, I have spent some time building these as well uh, in different scenarios because we were an infrastructure provider. But um, the uh, it depends on the focus of the product. So if you're building a product which is not in the security space, then you have ample other um, you know, softwares that you could actually leverage for this kind of integration. So uh, using something like Okta or Auth0 would actually provide this to you out of the box. Now coming to authorization, right? Like, so we spoke about who you are. Now, what can you do, right? Like we figured out who you are, but well, we need to see whether we'll give you permissions to do everything or we should restrict it in some way, right? And that's where the authorization piece comes in. And broadly, it's understood using these three uh, structures, right? Like it's the identity, and then it's the role that the identity maps to, and then it's the policies that you want to define on those roles. And um, essentially, if uh, if you take this example, so uh, the identity could be you know user one, user two. You could group a bunch of these users and say, hey, all of these, this entire group is actually corresponds to this role, right? A role of an architect or a developer or a tester. And then to that particular role, I wanna apply certain policies. So maybe I wanna give uh, you know, access to a particular kind of document repository to the architect and a different kind of repository to the tester, right? Um, so that's where the authorization comes in. So this is also commonly referred to as uh, role-backed access control, RBAC. Now, uh, one of the things that's come up is, okay, so this is great. Now, how do we write these policies, right? And one of the new paradigms is the open policy agent. Um, so if, if your product is built using Kubernetes or any kind of service mesh or any of these technologies, open policy agent can be hooked into it. Now, what the policy agent believe, the, the architecture essentially is to decouple the uh, policy writing from the actual um, you know, policy decisions. So what it does is you can send a query and a decision 
to the uh, OPA engine, to the open policy agent engine. And you, the engine will basically have a bunch of policies written, right? And then it will act on the, um, it, it will actually act on the query and then figure out the uh, decision to be handed out. So, so you will send in a query and you will basically have the engine apply a policy to it to figure out whether the access should be allowed or not. So just to make things a little more concrete, um, essentially, you could ask questions like, which users can access which resources? You can also say, you know, which subnets egress traffic is allowed or not? Which clusters a workload must be deployed to? Which registry binaries should actually be um, downloaded from? So you can see that it's, it's a, like a range of different uh, topics, right? And the flexibility is what is interesting about the uh, OPA policy engine. Uh, it does use a policy language called Rego, which is domain agnostic. It plugs into the um, Kubernetes admi uh, admission control hook. So it's um, an easy way to kind of gate access using that. Now, now that we've spoken so much about the periphery security, how far have we got in terms of like securing our initial diagram, right? Um, clearly, I like pink. So everything that has been secured is basically in pink in this diagram. So we had the web application firewall, which we said is kind of right at the entry point before it even hits our API gateway. And as part of the gateway, we kind of extended it where we said we'll do authentication and we will do authorization, right? So now, um, hopefully, we've built a fairly secure um, you know, external in kind of system to prevent attackers from outside. How about the internal services? So again, going from the network angle first, right? Um, there is something called micro-segmentation that you can do where um, we basically have applications running, right? Now, every application um, let, let me also caveat this by saying, if it is a virtual machine that you're running your application in, then that virtual machine is actually associated with an IP address and a port, right? Um, so micro-segmentation is a way to say your application, when you say secure my application, or you, you say in this example, in this diagram, you can see that there is a web there is an app and there is a database. And if I wanted to write a rule that my web cannot communicate with the database, that's all that I would do. I would say the web can't communicate with the database. What micro-segmentation uh, could do is it would convert that into corresponding IP addresses and ports and into network rules to make that a reality, right? And um, this is actually, um, this, this is something that I had kind of worked on in uh, Nutanix. There's a product called Flow where uh, we make this happen. So visualizing this actually adds a lot of value because you want to be able to see what the interactions are to be able to figure out which ones you want to block and which one you want to kind of let through, right? And usually the zero trust model is you start by not allowing any interactions and then start gradually allowing the interactions that you actually want to happen. 
there is a company called Celium, which actually extends this model of network microsegmentation to containers. Um, so this is also available in the Kubernetes world now. Now, also, what about the other kind of threats that we spoke about, right? Like we spoke about authentication, authorization, and encryption. And all of this should actually apply even to our internal services, like I said, because um, you could be interacting between two services within your cloud in the context of someone, right? Like, so I'm still asking you for privileged information and you might wanna know who I am and whether I have access to that particular action, right? The who I am might change a little bit in the service context, because you could be, um, there are two levels of who, right? So there is uh, who am I as the user, um, as in the customer, the external user, and also who am I as a service? Um, so for example, you could have certain services that you say shouldn't have access to your database. So that's a rule that you can write with the service identity in picture. And um, the next rule is kind of to encrypt all communications because like I said, if you have an attacker within for whatever reason your system was breached, you don't want it to be an open system that they can completely exploit, right? So going into how we would encrypt all of the communication, right? So um, there is mutual TLS. So we spoke about certificate authorities. We spoke about certificates being handed and being trusted, right? Uh, we have ever spoke about it in the context of just one direction. So the thing, so the deal with mutual TLS is that both the client, the client verifies that the server is who the server says it is, and the server verifies that the client is actually who it says it is, right? So, um, so this is like a small diagram of the handshake to basically say communications don't actually you know, start uh, happening until both parties have verified each other and communication is completely encrypted. The other part of the encryption story is something called data encryption at rest, right? So all of this time we were talking about encryption during transport, right? Like when you're making API calls or when there is communication possibly using RPCs or any of that, right? Uh, but how about the data which actually gets stored? in a database, we would have to actually encrypt that as well. And then that's the data encryption at rest story. So um, encryption of course happens with some kind of a combination of public key and private key. And um, the other piece of the database, um, I guess security story is that you also need access control when you're accessing information from the database. Now talking more about data, I'm sure a lot of you kind of heard a lot in the news about PII or personally identifiable information. And this is potentially the biggest threat when there's a data breach, right? Like you don't want your email address or your profile photograph or anything that, or your phone number, anything that personally identifies you to be stored in a way that it can actually be retrieved by someone. Right. And so um, this is kind of a snippet from Amazon's solution. Um, there are a lot of different other ways to do it as well. But just to show an example, 
you would basically try to not store personally identifiable information in a database which is queryable, right? You um, so, so there are multiple ways to deal with it. There is uh, there's something called tokenization that you can do. Uh, but this particular example basically talks about how you could have data from S3 being read by Amazon solution called Glue Data Brew, and they would run PII statistics to identify it first, right? And then redact all of that data. And then after that, put it in S3 and then make it queryable. Now, switching gears a little bit, um, there's also vulnerabilities in the code, right? And um, essentially, a lot of the code could be a combination of libraries. For example, if you use Golang, you'll end up with like a bunch of different libraries that uh, would put, could potentially have vulnerabilities, right? Or there is open source code that you might be using, or just code that you've written sometimes could have like these vulnerabilities. And um, I guess I'm going to take an example of probably one of the most dangerous kind of um, vulnerabilities, and it's called the remote code execution, right? And uh, what this does is the attacker can actually create, you know, malicious um, uh, code or activity by injecting it through your server, right? Um, so, so they put malicious code into your like website and then they possibly you know, run a script or something and gain access into your system or your network overall and then compromise the system. Um, so what do we do about attacks like that, right? Um, there are a few approaches. So there's code vulnerability scanning, which is more of a static code analysis that you keep running. So uh, usually you would have a CI CD pipeline or some kind of pipeline where your code gets built and you know deployed and tested and so on. In that pipeline, you would make sure that you also scan the libraries for some vulnerabilities. Um, you could also scan the binaries that you're actually using, right? Um, another thing to keep in mind is you should apply security patches regularly, right? And uh, the, the, this kind of scanning would basically tell you if there's a vulnerability and you need to apply a security patch. And open source libraries, when you pick them up, it's actually good to look at the rating of the library, of course, but it's also important to check what their security practices are in terms of the frequency of their patching and the engagement by the community. Um, there is this project that I found for open source developers, which uh, I think is super useful because it gives you these tools for free to integrate with your open source repo. Now, the other kind of analysis you could do for code vulnerability is something called fuzzing, right? And what this means, what this involves is you determine the inputs to any kind of you know, function or any, any product or service, basically. And you generate data based on you know, the inputs. So fuzz data is essentially you know, potentially malicious data. And then you execute the tests against this data and you analyze how the system behaves. right? And then you start identifying issues based on the uh, behavior that you notice and where there are flaws. Going one step further, there is something called pen testing where you, of course, you know, set the goals of um, 
how you want um, the overall intelligence gathered. And then you use scanning tools to understand, okay, how a target actually responds to intrusions. And then you uh, actually launch these web application attacks on yourself, right? So you stage it and you try to cover those vulnerabilities you or you, you target those vulnerabilities rather and then you basically uh, have you know maintaining access um, so apis are kind of imitated to see if the vulnerability can be used to maintain the access so you've gained access that's great but how do you maintain it right and now from whatever you have learned from this can you actually apply that to what we spoke right in the beginning about web application firewalls, right? Like, could we actually configure the web application firewall now to take care of these extra vulnerabilities that we've identified? On this week's Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we have a discussion between Prachi Shah, Senior Software Engineer at MetroMile, and Elaine LaGuarta, Senior Engineer at New Relic where they talk about how to prepare for system design interviews. Enjoy. So quickly, right? Like what is system design? So basically system design is where we, we talk about like your product design is, right? What product are you trying to build? What system are you trying to build? What are different components of the system? Uh, what would the data flow be uh, across these different components? What would the interaction be? So the high, at the very high level, this is what your uh, system design is, right? Like you're developing a product and then you have a backend system around it, a front-end system around it, and you want to understand what, how these interact, right? How do they uh, manipulate data? So that's what um, very simple definition of the system design would be. Some examples, uh, you know, like front-end, backend, APIs, data models, all these together uh, can be uh, called like a system. Uh, and uh, when you do system design, you want to talk about, or at least focus on all these different parts of, of that system. So uh, uh, you can talk about front-end inland, back-end inland, APIs, data models. There are a bunch of other things which we'll also uh, talk about. Um, in, when it comes to a system design interview, these are really like open-ended questions. Um, there is no right or wrong solution. There is no one solution of how you approach these problems. So these are very open-minded and the discussion can go in any direction depending on how much knowledge you have, what are some of the things you would like to talk about, what is your interviewer asking you to focus on, right? So very open-ended questions, um, not like an algorithm coding interview which might have one best optimized solution, right? Other solution would be a brute force. That's not how system design interview questions work. Um, uh, in the interview, the focus is more on like, how do you understand these different components? How do you understand the interaction between these components? And uh, how would you want to design the flow of data um, in between these different uh, uh, components, right? So that's what you need to focus on. Or that's what you can, um, you can start with. Uh, communication is very important here. Um, you need to like communicate with your interviewer and talk about like, you know, what we are trying to do here. What's the goal? right clarity like make sure you ask the right questions or even simple questions to make sure that the interviewer uh, and the interviewee are on the same page and they're working towards uh, uh, you know like the same goal when it comes to um, what you're trying to design um, bear in mind it's a discussion uh, think about this as like you know two colleagues getting together 
working on a product requirement, doing some design around it. So it's, it should always be very collaborative. It should be discussion. And that's what we want for, uh, tonight as well. Uh, um, what they really focus on, uh, what actually what you should really focus on is like the pros and cons, your trade-offs. Uh, make some assumptions, uh, talk about like some of the things that are unknown, talk about some of the things that are like, hey, this is a short-term problem. We might not worry, we don't have to worry about it six months down the line. So this is how I'm going to modify my design to accommodate that thinking or that decision, right? Or, you know, hey, how would this look like two years down the line? Maybe, you know, if, if this is something that will last for two years or more, maybe let's solve some of the problems now so we don't go, uh, we don't have any kind of headaches or we can scale the system much better in two years, right? So, like, uh, the interviewer really wants to, uh, uh, whatever recommendation you make, the, re the interviewer really wants to know, like, how do you make, came to that decision, right? What are the pros and cons of your designs? How do you handle unknowns and uncertainties? And how are you approaching this when it comes to short-term design thinking versus long-term? So that would be really helpful. Um, uh, I feel like uh, we should go through some principles of system design, but because we are solving um, a design question in, in a bit, I felt like maybe it's a good uh, uh, revision or mention of the some other principles of system design. Uh, bear in mind that depending on what you're designing, um, something might be more important than the other. And that's something you need to figure out, uh, right? Availability in general is the most important. Uh, other things may or may not be more important, or you might not want to solve for some of these principles. Uh, as you're designing, it can be something that you'd want to do six months down the line, as an example. Um, yeah, so scaling is basically your change in performance as per changing application demands, right? You have 10 users that are using your app. Tomorrow, you want 500 users. How can you, you know, like, extend your system, scale your system to support all that traffic, right? That's what scaling um, means. Uh, availability is basically your system uh, uptime and downtime, right? Like uh, how available is your system? And even if it's there's a downtime, how short it is, how what's the impact around it? These are some of the things you need to think about. Reliability would be like, hey, the system was designed to do ABC, and it's actually doing those tasks correctly, right? So then that makes your system reliable. Uh, robustness would be, uh, uh, right, how does your system behave when it comes to any kind of errors or any kind of disturbances, right? A service is down uh, that your system is dependent on, an external service, how would your system uh, be robust in that situation, right? So you have to think about those things. Uh, load balancing is like uh, uh, basically uh, managing your network traffic distribution, right, across servers. Uh, you are in a holiday season, you know, and, and, you're, and you sell, I don't know, Christmas uh, gift cards, uh, so the peak time or, or gift cards, right? The peak time for that kind of a website would be, uh, you know, like holidays and stuff. You have more traffic, more users shopping from your website, whereas something like, I don't know, in June when there's no festival, not a lot of people uh, would, would shop from your website. So you need to understand how, how that will look like. Um, caching is a, a data storage layer, basically. Um, it can be something similar to using a database or some kind of Redis cache or uh, um, you know, storing some kind of data for lookups, uh, depending on what your application needs are. You may or may not want to do caching. Uh, data partitioning is uh, distributing your data across different systems to improve uh, querying performance. Um, SQL versus NoSQL, so this, thing, this is uh, uh, pretty standard in uh, system design interviews. You have some requirement, and you need to figure out, right? How would my data models look like? How would I want to store my data? Is it a relational data with tables and stuff like that? Or is it NoSQL where I have a column-wide 
a, a data store or it's a graph database right or, or a document store so you have to make those decisions and that depends on like how your data flow should be it also depends on what requirements you have and uh, uh, what uh, features of the product and stuff like that um, performance is basically a glitch uh, how um, fast and glitch free uh, your uh, application is i added a disclaimer there because like you can define what glitch means here and what the downtime would be around it so uh, that's something uh, to also like keep in mind like how performant your website is or your app is or your product is uh, extensibility is the future growth right let's say you need to just create uh, a simple app that does three things and keep on maintaining it for three years down the line uh, right uh, or you need to create an app which has three features now you want to add five more features you want to just do a lot more things then um, the code that you wrote it needs to be designed with the thinking that uh, you know like uh, okay we are designing for three features right now but this is gonna like we're gonna extend it to add much more code much more features so you need to keep that in mind as you as you uh, build the foundation for it uh, the last would be error handling and security. Uh, error handling would be uh, something related to like, you know, you have APIs and you have a user experience. Uh, how do you define the error handling for those APIs, right? And security is just how you secure your data, your interaction system interactions, how you, if you persist your data, uh, you know, you need to make sure if you're storing PII and stuff like that, you need to secure it. Ideally, you should not store it, but if you do, you need to secure it and persist in, uh, in a different ways to do that. But like, keep you need to keep, uh, security in mind always and error handling for a better uh, user experience. So interview do's and don'ts is what we'll talk about next. Um, like I mentioned before, like uh, ask questions because an interviewer can and, and can give you like a question like, hey, you know, I want to design, I don't know, Instagram um, or I want to design hopin.com. Let's talk about it. It can be so generic uh, as that, or it can be something very specific. So you need to really ask like follow-up questions, understand what the scope is, understand what the requirements are. You know, are we trying to design for 50 features or we can just keep three features or three requirements in mind just because the interview is for one hour and just like focus on them, right? So like uh, really ask more questions, relevant questions and understand what the interviewer um, uh, is asking you to like, you know, design for. Uh, if if they ask you to design like a banking system, right? Like, would you need to understand the domain knowledge? If they ask you to design like a hedge fund website or tool, like, do you need to understand hedge funds in order to even write a good design, right? So some for some uh, interview questions, domain knowledge may be important. For some companies, when you interview, if you have certain domain knowledge, it's appreciated. So you would also want to ask uh, if that it comes into the picture, is that something you need to consider? If they say yes, then you would need to ask them, hey, can you give me some information? Can you explain the domain in a, uh, for a, like, you know, uh, some summary of the domain which I can use now to, you know, make, uh, make decisions around the design I would propose. Uh, note all the topics you want to discuss and follow. So let's say your interviewer says, hey, let's focus on like, you know, these three things. So based on that, you would give like, hey, these are the five things that I would want to talk about in this design uh, interview. And these are the five, the five things that I think are important. Just note them down. You know, if you're whiteboarding or if you're online, just like note them down and make sure you say that to the interviewer and then make sure they, and, and they agree with it. And then you have to now like, in the interview, just make sure you focus on all those five things that you need to talk about. You don't have to talk about anything and everything that comes to your mind. 
just make sure that you and the interviewer are on the same page and you need to focus on, on, on these five topics that are most important. Um, visualization helps. Um, this is important because like, yeah, okay, if you're going to a, a, a company and you, have a, you are in a conference room, you have whiteboard, visualization helps. But if you are giving an online interview, which, which pretty much everyone is in, in pandemic times, learn some kind of like a, a visualization tool out there. Get some familiarity with it. Miro is one example, great example, which Elaine is going to uh, give us a demo about later today. Uh, but just like make sure, like you know, like you learn some kind of tool, drawing tool like that, and and you can draw component diagram and stuff like that to you know, like uh, uh, discuss with the with the interviewer. They would really really appreciate that. Visualization visualization definitely helps. Okay. Uh, one really important thing, which a lot of people who, especially uh, you know, like uh, people who are like juniors and like new to this, uh, they really get nervous about is like you know, if 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 the industry asks about a specific concept or technology, they just like try to like come up with something, you know, just to answer. Like it's okay to say that you don't know something, you don't have experience with it, or you don't have familiarity with it, you have never heard of it, and then ask them, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, can you explain me? Can you give me a one-line summary? Can you give me uh, any kind of information that now I can use to consider in, in this design recommendation that I'm making, right? So it's okay to say you don't know. Be curious and like ask, right? Uh, or, or ask them, is there something else that, uh, uh, that I can uh, consider here, right? Make some assumptions. If you have some familiarity from your experience, you can say, hey, I don't know about this, but this is a tool that I had experience with. I have more family familiarity with it. Can I, can I, uh, you know, in this example of in the interview, can I leverage this technology? If they are fine, awesome. So, like, make some assumptions and and frame some kind of recommendations or suggestions. Uh, you know, uh, that also the interviewer appreciates because that shows curiosity, curiosity, and that also shows experience. Um, one other important thing is uh, 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 do what the interviewer asks you to focus on. Uh, yes, at the beginning of the interview, you might talk about like, hey. There are 10 different things to consider here, you know. If you do all these things, all these 10 things, then we have completely designed uh, the system, right? But they might only ask uh, you to focus on two things throughout the entire interview. Uh, you know, because, hey, if there's a front-end engineer interviewing you, they might only ask you to focus on API design and user experience. If someone is in back-end, they might be fine with talking about front-end, back-end, APIs, bunch of different things, data storage, bunch of, bunch of different things, right? If someone is from the infrastructure side, they might only want to focus on that because that's what their expertise in, or that's what they're interested in, or that's a team they're hiring you for, so they would only focus on specific things. So they just talk to the interviewer and make sure like you understand what they're asking you to focus on, and then uh, continue through your interview, uh, focusing on those uh, uh, important topics. Uh, like I said before, there is no right or wrong answer. Uh, there is no one solution either. Uh, it's just trade-offs. It's just pros and cons. It's just assumptions and constraints you need to keep in mind, uh, and you need to like you know design for that. Uh, that's also why system design interviews can be um, uh, slightly uncomfortable because like you don't know if you did well or not, right? Because you came up with one solution or you came up with one design at the end, but the interviewer is if they're really experienced, they'll be like, yeah, but this person could have done that, and they didn't do that. So uh, system design interviews um, um, can be tricky, but with uh, good practice, uh, you uh, they are they are uh, you, you should be able to crack them for sure. Uh, don'ts is don't start coding. I think Elaine mentioned that before. 
uh, system design interview is not, it's not a lead code interview. It's not an algorithm interview. You don't have to start coding. Uh, you know, don't start writing the API. Don't start like writing the data models on the whiteboard or, uh, you know, like, hey, this is my data table. Uh, this is the, the column names and this is the indexes and stuff like that. Don't jump into that right away unless uh, the interviewer asks you, like, you have to come up with a basic component diagram. Let's just talk about components first, requirements and components first. And then if the interviewer specifically asks you to focus on, hey, so like, this is one component, this is one microservice, right? Can we focus on this for a bit? And can you help me understand what APIs you'd want to design for this? Or can you help me understand like what data models you would want to uh, design here? Then definitely go for it, because that's what uh, we want to discuss. But unless uh, explicitly asked, don't jump into it right away. There is a time and step for when you want to talk about these things, uh, but definitely not the first uh, first thing to begin with. Uh, a lot of people make this mistake, and uh, it's it's a big no, uh, at least in my experience. And uh, don't be quiet. Uh, when 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 uh, interviewers do system design interview. They are basically looking for a colleague. They are looking for someone they can just like you know discuss design with and collaborate and and, and work together. So uh, don't be quiet. It's okay to say something. Or even if you if you if you want to be like, hey, I need to think about it for half a minute. Okay, at least then 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 you know uh, express it rather than just like not talking for like two minutes, five minutes, whatever. This should be a collaboration. So this should be very light in the sense that they just want to discuss things with you they just want to like discuss trade-offs with you so it should be very uh, it should be like a, a conversation uh, uh so like don't be nervous about like someone like judging you they're just trying to understand you uh and they're just trying to have a conversation with you yeah so there is there is some framework how you can approach a system design uh, interview uh today's question we are going to like design airbnb uh, again, I'm repeating, this should be a collaborative effort. So we want you to like unmute and talk. We want you to collaborate to the design, collaborate to the component diagram that we will, will be showing you. And we just want to like, you know, let us, let's get together and design Airbnb, right? So uh, this should be a lot of fun, I think. To approach such a design question, you have to start with components first, uh, right? So like uh, all these components that we, we need to like, this can be some kind of framework that you can, you know, remember I mentioned these five to topics that you would want to talk about. Consider this as that, uh, those five topics, right? First, you want to talk about like requirements, right? Like what are you trying to do here uh, exactly? We, we, requirements are two types. Functional would be like, hey, you know, um, you know, like uh, product requirements. Hey, this is what our customers want, so we are building it. Or this is what we need to build in order to grow the company. So, okay, so this is the product you're building or you're the service you're building, right? So those will be functional or business or product requirements. You need to understand that. Uh, Non-functional would be like consider design principles, right? You want to design a, a service that is like, uh, you want to design this service, right? This product service, but like it should be like, you know, like uh, we need some uh, low latency, we need high availability, stuff like that. You know, like uh, we need these, it should be read heavy, heavy system versus a write heavy system. Uh, stuff like that so you would want to talk about like all these functional requirements as well uh, it should be highly available system right uh, this is uh, highly performant these are some of the things you also need to understand sla's come into the picture service level agreements that talk about some of these things so that is also something you will need to um, understand uh, this would be a part of the requirements um, data models would be like hey do we need a sql data store or do we need no sql in no sql is it a column wide is it a document is it a graph data store uh, these are some of the uh, decisions you'll need to make 
uh, of course, you need to understand the product. Of course, you need to understand what you're trying to do here uh, in order to make these decisions. Also, you can pick a SQL database, but is it like MySQL? Is it Postgres? Is it something else? Uh, those are also some of the decisions you need to make, like even dif between different tools, what are the trade-offs? And uh, you know, this, this, this database does indexing better or this database uh, does uh, asset compliance better. You need to kind of like uh, also do, uh, uh, basically uh, compare the trade-offs between even different tools out there, right? Before, before determining uh, what you'd want to go ahead. Uh, caching is important. Uh, you know, do you want to do caching? Do you not want to do caching? If yes, then how do you want to implement caching, right? You need to understand that. Uh, data partitioning, uh, uh, load balancing, all these concepts that we discussed uh, would be related to data and like system availability, which you should also consider. Uh, Backend services, right? Like uh, how many microservices do you need? Do you need one microservice? Do you need five microservices? Are these all internal or this is an external vendor that you need to now you know, get data from, right? So all, what would that uh, external integration look like? Do you need to secure your APIs? You know, like what are you using uh, for, for what, what if that system is down? How are you going to like do error handling, right? Like you need to think about those things. Uh, API and front end, again, it somewhat aligns with backend services where like, hey, are you designing REST APIs? How many APIs do you need? Uh, you're designing three features, so maybe three APIs in the, in the future, you might need more. Are you doing third operations? Uh, what does your user experience look like? Some in, for some applications which are very front end heavy or where the user experience matters a lot, you might design the APIs uh, for the user experience. In, for some applications where it's very data heavy, you might want to design for uh, the data, right? So you have to consider all these things as you uh, uh, think about APIs and front end and also your data models. Uh, security would be, would be right, yeah, like do you need authentication? Do you need authorization? Um, uh, how extensible your services, right? If you want to now integrate with five different services, how would you? How, is, how, how easy is it to make changes in your code and your services to to uh, support that, right? Like how would scaling look like? Uh, what would availability look like? So you need to think about all those things uh, as well. This week's segment of Women Who Code Conversations, we hear from Sabrina Vega, software engineer two at Microsoft. She talks about her career experience at Microsoft, how her passion for DEI led to co-founding Somos, and her advice for achieving a healthy work-life balance. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Stephanie Rideout, Leadership Fellow at Women Who Code for the Python track. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Sabrina Vega. Sabrina is a software engineer too at Microsoft on the Word Online team where she focuses on boot experience and performance. Her family is originally from Colombia, but she was born and raised in Florida. Outside of her engineering role, Sabrina is passionate about diversity, inclusion, and belonging work, especially when it comes to the Hispanic Latinx community. She serves as the co-lead for SOMOS, which is the early and career community for Hispanic Latinx talent and allies at Microsoft that she co-founded two years ago. It has grown to over 500 members, impacting both full-time employees and interns. Thank you for joining me today, Sabrina. Would you like to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your career journey? Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Sabrina Vega. Like Stephanie mentioned, my parents are originally from Bogota, Colombia. Um, moved here and I was born and raised in Florida. 
went to University of Florida, and then around, I think almost three years now, moved to Seattle to work full-time for Microsoft. I have always been interested in computer science. Growing up, I was super into like spy gear, spy stuff, and thought I wanted to work for the CIA. And so when I got put into my first kind of, I did like an AP comp sci class in high school, I was like, oh, okay, no, I want to do this. This is like fun. This is the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. And yeah, I was really interested in just finding different opportunities and how to get into tech. And I got really lucky that I was involved in NCWIT, which is the National Center for Women in Information Technology in high school. And they were a really great community and kind of helped guide me. I had some great kind of female mentors that guided me into saying, hey, you should do computer science. And so I found a couple of internships with Microsoft and then decided to do full time. And now here we are today. Yeah, that is so wonderful. I'm so happy you had such a great foundation in your youth and um, that could inspire you. So fantastic. Please tell us about working at Microsoft and the work you do there as a software engineer. Yeah. So as Stephanie mentioned, I am part of the Word Online team, which is part of the Word organization, pretty big team. Um, but I specifically work under performance. So a lot of with like how fast the application loads, how fast, you know, or how slow it takes to interact with stuff, how our features load up in the app when we boot and open up a document. And so I've been really lucky that with that team, I've been able to kind of have my hands in a bunch of different projects. So I work kind of in server side stuff as well as client side because kind of the boot experience covers all of it. I've also been able to kind of work with a lot of data and experimentation at Microsoft. We do, especially with Word, we do a lot of experiments. Everything is, has to make sure that it passes before we actually ship it out to customers. And so that kind of like customer first perspective was super new to me coming from university. And has been a fun skill that I've been able to learn. And so a lot of like SQL server side stuff, looking at how users experiences actually go and knowing what that means in numbers. And I've also been able to do some fun uh, UX work, which I didn't think that I would be able to do kind of being on the more servery website of stuff. But my team has really given me a lot of opportunities. So I've been able to do, we collaborate a lot with our design team and our PM team. And I have a great designer and PM on my crew. So uh, yeah, been able to kind of do a lot of different things all surrounding kind of the performance and booth space. That's phenomenal. It sounds like um, Microsoft is a really amazing company to work for, and you're working on so many really exciting projects, and that's amazing. So what can you tell us about the company and team culture at Microsoft? Yeah, so I, I guess to kind of backtrack, I started at Microsoft, like had my first internship with them after my freshman year of college kind of stumbled upon it super randomly. They had come to UF and were speaking, trying to get people interested in their internship. I went and talked to the recruiter and found out that they had a specific internship program for freshmen and sophomores. Because um, I'd kind of been warned in the past that, oh, like if you want an internship at a big tech company, you have to be a junior, like you have to have a bunch of things under your belt. And I was like, I have not even taken programming one. I don't know <laughs> any of this. Um, so it was really cool to see if they had one made for folks that weren't there yet. And so I ended up doing the program and the basis of it is to explore the different disciplines. So you get to do both PM and software engineering, and then you get to later on decide if you get a return offer, which one would I actually want to pursue? And through that was kind of 
my intro into Microsoft culture. And I had a phenomenal summer. I met some of my best friends. I was able to come out to Seattle. I had never seen mountains or snow before. So living in Florida, I was super excited to be out here and they spoiled the interns. So we got gifts and concerts and it was really fun. There was like no doubt in my mind that I wanted to come back. And I ended up coming back for two other summers doing, I did my last one in California with the PowerPoint team, which was just equally as fun. And so when it came time to kind of deciding where I wanted to work full time, I knew that I would be able to still grow professionally at Microsoft. Like it's a huge company. So if I wanted to say, okay, I don't want to do, you know, office anymore. I want to jump over to gaming. I could go to Xbox. If I wanted to do something else, I could go over to like EDU side of stuff. I knew that I had a lot of opportunities, but then the plus for me was for sure the fact that I really loved going to work. Like I love my job. I love my coworkers. I had a lot of friends there. And so going to campus and like moving across the country, it kind of wasn't as daunting for me as one would expect going from Florida all the way to Seattle. Cause it was like, I already had a community there, even though I was starting on a team that I did not even intern at all. I didn't know anyone. And once I joined, yeah, my team is amazing. And I've been really lucky that Word has a really rich history. It's a product that's been around for a really long time. So there are folks on the team that have been there since the beginning, they know everything. And then there's also a lot of folks that are brand new and they're bringing all these cool ideas um, and both are really welcome. And so it's fun to be part of a product that has so much history, but it's also inviting and like ready to grow. And so, yeah, it's a, I can really feel like myself when I go to work and I've met really great friends. So it's, yeah, great, great culture that I've been able to experience there. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really, that's phenomenal. So um, what does diversity, inclusion, and belonging mean to you? And how did this inspire you to co-found Somos? Yeah, so I think I had always been interested in kind of diversity and inclusion work. I grew up in North Florida. There's not a lot of Hispanics in North Florida, but I went to the University of Florida and there are a lot of Hispanics that go to UF. So when I started university, I was able to kind of jump in to the Hispanic and Latinx community. And I got really, really involved in a lot of the DNI work. And that was kind of where my community and my like uh, support system was throughout college. So I loved the work that I did. I loved being able to help my own community. So when it came to Microsoft, I was without a doubt knowing that I wanted to continue that, but I wasn't sure really at what capacity. And when I joined the Word team, they have their own kind of DNI team, but they call it their div team. And so that's where the belonging piece comes in of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And I'd never really heard that before. Like I'd heard of DNI, but I never heard of DIMB. And I really liked the concept because it just emphasized the fact that, hey, one thing is hiring diverse people and making them feel, you know, that they can be included at the company, but do they feel that they actually belong long-term on a team, in a city, as part of a company, as part of a group is like a whole different, but just as important endeavor. And so I think that belonging portion really stuck with me. And that was kind of the niche that Somos tries to fill. And so Somos is the early in career community um, for Hispanic and Latinx talent and allies at Microsoft. And we fall under a larger organization that is for all Hispanic and Latinx employees. But we felt, especially for those that are early in career, there was kind of a gap because a lot of us were, you know, coming from the university. We had just left four years of kind of having our best friends are creating these super bonds. Other people are coming from other countries. They're leaving their families. A lot of us weren't moving with families. Like we didn't have any established people. We were coming here by ourselves. 
So we didn't have that kind of belonging piece yet. And add on on top of that COVID and starting a new job, there was just like a whole plethora of people that felt that they didn't belong. And so we, I had kind of started at the company before COVID. And so I knew that there was room to grow in that area. And then when COVID started, my co-founder Natalia Dunlap, she had kind of, I saw her posting and reaching out. And so we kind of teamed up and we were like, Hey, I think this is a really big need that we could fill. Let's see kind of how we can work this out and actually make it a thing. Yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing um, all that Somos is doing to uh, foster that belonging in its members. That is really spectacular. What does community mean to you and how is Somos fostering the Hispanic Latinx community for those early in their careers? So community, I think specifically within the context of kind of Hispanic and Latinx culture is super important. I mean, the culture itself is a very one that is super communal. You know, you kind of hear a lot of the words of like familia and like the people that you grow up with. Um, and it's something that people really treasure. And so I thought has always been a part of my life, um, being Hispanic and being Colombian and especially moving to Seattle so far away from home. I knew that like, if I wanted to live here full time, I needed to find a community. And that was a very shared sentiment with a lot of folks that, with anyone really, that moves to a new city. And so, yeah, Somos has been able, we've started around two years ago and we're now, yeah, 500 plus members, which is super exciting for us. There's so many people that are members of it. And so for us, we kind of, when we were planning it out, we broke it down into four different areas that we thought people would need kind of to be addressed in order to create that community. And so we have, and they're all different pillars that are run by Somos members, our leadership team. And so we have our uh, executive engagement pillar. That's kind of the career portion. So it's career panels, folks from higher up, like CVPs or whatever, coming in and talking to our group, having conversations about your 401k, about retirement. A lot of people are coming in and they're, they were first generation students. So now they're first time in the industry. So there are all these things that, you know, their parents didn't have to deal with. And now they can have peers to talk to about that. We also have our community service pillar. And so we've been able to partner with a lot of schools in the Seattle area that specifically serve the Hispanic and Latinx community. And so it's been cool to kind of, you know, Microsoft is a really big presence in Seattle. And so being able to use some of those resources to give back to the actual city and like the Hispanic and Latinx youth that could then come into Microsoft is really cool. We have our internship pillar that helps run the intern program with university recruiting for Hispanic and Latinx um, interns. And that is like my favorite part because I love interns and internships and I had such a great experience. And so I really want other interns to be able to have such a positive experience. Um, And then we have our social pillar, which is like the very fun one and the one that everyone likes because we have our white elephants and monthly lunches. We take trips to the wineries here in Seattle. We're trying to set up kind of meetups around the U.S. There's a big hub in Atlanta and a big hub in the Bay Area. So hopefully we'll be able to have some social events there also. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I agree that uh, community is everything. So (laughs) I love love, uh, everything that Somos is doing. Can you tell us about the impact Somos is having on the early in career Hispanic Latinx community at Microsoft? Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest way that I've seen impact was being able to talk with the interns. So we don't necessarily run the actual internship program, but we do one with OLA and with University Recruiting that is kind of a series of programming that 
are re- that are done for interns that self-identify as Hispanic and Latinx. And last year it was completely virtual, but we were able, you can do Airbnb experiences and we were able to do a virtual salsa dancing class. And we had a bunch of interns that were in Latin America. So like in Colombia, in Peru, um, in Mexico, others that were in the States. And we were all able to do it together, which was awesome. We did like a, a virtual magic show. We had, yeah, we do little cafecitos that are run by the interns themselves. And so it was awesome at the end of the summer to see the percentage of interns that gave us such good feedback and were able to say, hey, we really, really enjoyed our summer, even though it was all virtual, like we didn't actually get to go to campus or anything. And we want to come back next year as an intern, or we want to come back next year as a full-time employee. We've had a lot of folks now that, at least for Seattle, we're starting to open up again of the offices and people get to meet everyone for the first time. There are a lot of people that have come up to us and given us the feedback of, hey, when it was COVID for the last year and a half, like I moved here and I didn't know anyone. And the only reason I'm still in Seattle or I'm still at Microsoft is because I found a community and because I found people that were going through the same things with me and that could relate with me. And I was able to have friends, which is sometimes a part that you don't think is as important at work. You're like, oh, I really like my job, but there is, there, everyone needs that community aspect. And so, yeah, it's been really great to see the community be so engaging. And we have people in Chicago and Boston and Florida and Texas. So, yeah. Awesome. So you mentioned internships. So that's a really nice segue into my next question, (laughs) which is what technical skills do you use as a software engineer too at Microsoft? And what advice do you have for college students applying for technical internship and apprenticeship opportunities at Microsoft? So on my day-to-day job, I mentioned before how I have done kind of a little bit of everything. Um, So for me, I do a lot of C-sharp because it's Microsoft. And then for kind of client-side stuff, yeah, C, C C-sharp, and then client-side stuff, JavaScript, TypeScript, React, HTML, CSS, kind of everything under that hat. And then data querying languages, so Custo, SQL. But I would say if you're looking to try to apply to an internship, even a full-time position um, or an apprenticeship of some sort, focusing less on the specifics of, oh, I'm really, really good at Java or I'm really, really good at, you know, this language. Like that's awesome. And those are great skills to have. But how do they apply in the workplace was a big shift that I had to kind of make when I started my job. And even when I was kind of interviewing for like the Explorer program or when I was interviewing for my uh, internships, that was something that the interviewers emphasized a lot, that at least what they were looking for was less so for you to know right off the bat that, hey, you know how to get the answer right. You know, it was more so can they problem solve? Like they wanted you to see that you were stuck and that you were able to then break it down. Okay, how do I solve this? What language or what that's done in is going to change all the time. Computer science changes so much. So even within like my couple last years here, it's like I've had to relearn total new tech stacks or like change totally the my coding environment that I'm in. And that is kind of always guaranteed that it's going to be changing. But the actual skills of how do you problem solve? How resourceful are you? I remember for me in college, there were times when it's like when I didn't understand things or even throughout my internship, when I was learning new complicated data structures or like data systems, I would go to YouTube and I would go to the internet and like EDX, Coursera have a lot of really great 
courses that you can look videos up super quickly. I loved Harvard CS50. I didn't go to Harvard, but I could take their course for free and it helped me so much. Microsoft has a lot of resources too. Azure has a kind of a 30 day cloud skills challenge that doing things like that and finding those resources um, are going to help you a lot when it comes to being successful in internships and wanting to kind of transfer into that full-time job. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing all those resources. I know a lot of people will find those helpful. So fantastic. Thank you so much. For our next question, uh, what advice do you have about work-life balance and avoiding burnout for those who are early in their careers? That's a big topic. <laughs> I think especially with COVID, burnout is people with people that just came out of university and were starting their job for the first time was extremely prevalent, at least with like the peers that I talked with. And I think for me, even when I started, I started full-time before COVID. Um, but even then the biggest shift that I saw was that in university, I was very used to you grind, you stay up till four in the morning with like three Starbucks, like finishing your paper, finishing, turning in your assignment, like last minute, 1159 is a deadline. And that's just not sustainable long-term as a full-time job. I realized very quickly. Um, and so I see a lot of people will want to, you know, impress their manager, impress your team. And they'll say, yeah, I can do this, 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 this. But you can do all of that, but you have to stay up till midnight or like two in the morning. And then from there, that's the norm because your manager is going to think, okay, they can do somehow all of this stuff. I'll continue to give them more. And so being comfortable with setting those boundaries, I found was something that I still kind of have to learn and not feeling bad with saying, you know, hey, okay, I can take on that task. But then asking my manager, can you help me reprioritize, you know, some of my other tasks? Like I already have this on my plate. How do I move forward with it? And so for me, I kind of think of buckets, I guess you could say, of like my work is one bucket that makes up Sabrina. And I really like it. And it, you know, works my brain. It makes me, you know, feel useful and intelligent. But that's not all that there is to making me happy. I really, really like working out. And I did synchronized swimming for eight years. So I've always had that be a core part of my life. And so Seattle doesn't have a ton of pools. So I've now become very addicted to SoulCycle. And that is kind of my at least two, three times a week. I love doing SoulCycle and I put it at the same level of I have to get my projects done. I have to go to SoulCycle because that is me. And I also really love hanging out with my friends and traveling. And so it's kind of, again, same level of priority. I would definitely recommend anyone that moves to a new city, look at the local rec uh, centers. A lot of them will have kind of free or really cheap art classes that you can do. We took up pottering, you know, we learned how to do little paint and sips. And I would say also putting in time for travel now that the world's opening up a little bit. I was able to go to Spain at the end of last year. And that was the first time that I had taken a like long vacation. And so putting in kind of PTO requests for like, oh, I'm going to be gone for two weeks, I was like very scared, but I think it's a good exercise of kind of saying, hey, I'm going to take time off. That's a normal thing that people do. And it makes me happy. And I was able to go to Spain with my family and my boyfriend and, you know, explore all of this. And I came back and work was fine. Nothing was on fire. Nothing exploded because there's always going to be more work. That's kind of how I think like there will always be things to stress about. There will always be more work. That is going to be the norm always. So how do you kind of make it sustainable? Yeah, that is spectacular advice, Sabrina. Thank you so much. 
Yeah. I, so many great tips. I'll have to go and rewatch <laughs> just that se section <laughs> later. Um, fantastic. So um, next question, what is a pro tip you would like to share with our audience? Pro tip, honestly, would be leveraging your connections. And those aren't always at least in my experience, they haven't always been, you know, the quote unquote professional connections that you make. When I was in college, a lot of the connections that I had were my friends and that they were also studying computer science. And one of them got an internship at Microsoft. And so the next summer, that one person gave us all recommendations and then we all got internships and then, you know, kind of so on and so forth. And I think especially when you're able to do things like internships and meet so many different people. Even if you go to a conference for a weekend, like if you get the chance to go to Grace Hopper, that's an amazing opportunity to find people that will kind of be in your corner, support you, even if they met you for a single day and you never see them again for the next three years, they still may remember you and say, Hey, I saw this opportunity or like, I'm going to be in your city or I'm working at your company now let's talk. And you never know where those are going to lead up. I would say a lot of like the success that I have had or me being able to even get into Microsoft or get into computer science has all been because people have pulled me aside and say, hey, Sabrina, no, you're coming and you're going to go talk to this Microsoft recruiter. And I was like, I'm a freshman. I don't know anything. And they're like, no, you're going. And I was like, OK. And so then I went and I was able to do all this stuff, you know, and so it's having those relationships with people genuine relationships, not ones that are, you know, just looking for what can you give me back? Because you never know kind of when and in what capacity they're going to be able to help you out and you're going to be able to kind of be a sponsor for someone else. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, like uh, fostering uh, connections and relationships. It's all about uh, having a genuine connection with that person yep. and give and take and not just, not just taking. So yep. <laughs> thank you so much. So, um, is there anything else you want to tell us? I think just as being a woman and as well, especially being a Hispanic woman, kind of person of color, I think there are a lot of times that I remember in my own journey, walking into spaces or even when I would tell people that I was, you know, a software engineer at Microsoft, they'd be like, oh, okay. Like, well, what do you work on? Kind of almost trying to see and undersee, okay, does she actually know what she's talking about? Did she actually earn her spot? You know. And she just a diversity higher. And I think for me, it's kind of a constant thing. You know, you're always going to be shown that. But what has helped me is knowing that I have a really strong community of uh, other women and other Hispanic women that are in tech. That again, I was able to foster those through internships, through meeting people, even through, you know, Instagram or YouTube, like reaching out to people. It can make the world of a difference. And for me, I think it's important to... I would just kind of give the piece of advice that make sure that you have a community that you can always come back to because it's kind of like here's a community you feel super strong confident they build you up and then you have to kind of go out by yourself into the world and when you're faced with those situations you're able to have kind of strength to pull from to say okay right now i'm a little bit alone or i'm a little bit scared or intimidated but i know that my friends think i'm all like super great and smart and they've done it and they're doing it so i can do it too because kind of doing it alone is really hard it's a lot and so I think being able to have that community and also being that community for other people, you know, now I'm kind of more three years, two years into my role. So I feel a lot more comfortable, but when new people join the team or especially like young Latinas I see are joining Somos, I understand how they're feeling. I know it's overwhelming. I know it can be scary. So I kind of try and do my best to help be that support system for them. 
and yeah, just being able to keep learning and keep being able to never stop trying to look for those resources. Um, I think we have a slide that we're going to share out after this that has kind of a list of all of those things that I would encourage to kind of take a look at and find, share any other ones that you all have, because I think that's, yeah, that's the constant thing of, especially computer science, you have to keep learning always. That is very true. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Sabrina, um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And um, you shared so many amazing insights and you're doing amazing work at Microsoft with Somos and uh, everything that you're doing as a software engineer. And it's really uh, phenomenal. And I've, I've really enjoyed um, having this conversation with you today. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for having me so much. It was great to talk with you. For listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate and comment.